please turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, and that is on page 979 of your worship guide, Ephesians chapter 6. This is a passage that I did not know at the beginning of the week when I was preparing to bring it before you, just how poignant it would be at this point in the week. Uh, on Wednesday night, what we do here at First Presbyterian Church is we gather together for a meal, for fellowship, just to spend time with one another, but we also gather to share what's going on in our lives, share our burdens, share things that we can be praying about with and for one another, and to bring those to the Lord in prayer. And this past Wednesday night here at First Pres was just truly one of the more beautiful times that I have experienced in the life of the church, not just this church, but any church. We were able to bring our joys and our sufferings before one another, and it was a beautiful time where we were able to speak gospel grace and gospel truth into one another's lives, and to just listen, and to be able to be vulnerable and lay our souls bare before one another and before God in a safe place where the gospel could be proclaimed and lived out and enjoyed. But it was a reminder that so many of us and so many of you here this morning are struggling through some acutely difficult issues in your life. And if you're not, it's just a matter of time before you will. And you can look back on your own life and see so many painful things, and it's the reality of life. So that's one contour of the week that impressed this passage upon me, because we need to know how to navigate the evil that we experience and that we commit in our own lives. But then there was something that I was confronted with yesterday. Came back from Chick-fil-A. I know you're shocked that I would have been at Chick-fil-A on a Saturday, but that's where I was. Sarah and I were there. She was playing in the little playground, and I came home and turned on the TV and um, noticed that 20 people in Tucson, Arizona, had been shot, one of them a member of the United States House of Representatives. It, was, uh, it took place in a shopping center that I'd been to a hundred times, having lived there. I found out that a former college classmate of mine was the, is the trauma chief at the University of Arizona Medical Center, who no doubt was seeing these patients who had come in and, and uh, many of them perhaps died on his table. And so you see things like that and it hits home and it's just such a colossal evil. And you start to wonder about the goodness of God. Is God checked into what's going on in our world when things like that are allowed to happen? It causes us to question His goodness, His sovereignty, that He's really in control of things. There's evil that confronts us all the time in so many different ways and we experience it and we commit it. And as Christians, as people who follow Christ, we need to figure out how we are going to navigate the Christian life and live out our identity in Christ in the midst of that kind of stuff. And that's what Paul brings to us in this passage this morning. And so, as we read it, I just want to ask that you tune in to these words. You may have heard them before, but they are food for your soul. And I pray that as we leave here today, that they would nourish your heart. So let's tune in to Ephesians chapter 6 now, beginning in verse 10. Paul says this, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with a love incorruptible. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, one of the things that stands out to me as I explore this passage is what it has to say about evil. In particular, what we might call spiritual warfare. For one reason or another, that's not a phrase or a term that we use all that often in churches such as ours because I think that we are prone to think of those who talk a lot about spiritual warfare and who really key into that as kind of those people who are ultra-charismatic, who's, uh, who allow the reality of the Christian faith almost to bypass their brain and go straight to the emotional experience. And we see spiritual warfare as almost being something that the people with the, the preachers with the scary-looking hair who push people over that flop on the floor like fish, we think that that's something that they deal with. But I think that we make a huge mistake in not coming to grips with the reality of spiritual warfare. That it's something that is real. It's something that's there and that there is a cosmic power behind it. In our day and age, in the context in which we live, it is easy for us to pass off things like spiritual warfare as being merely natural causes, merely natural things causing these things. And so we look at the guy yesterday who in Tucson mowed down 20 people, Jared Loeffner, and we give natural explanations for that. A bad upbringing, bad family bad training, just some kind of a bad egg, drugs, things of that nature. And we give natural explanations for it. All of those things are true, and all of those things are legitimate. 
But what Paul wants us to see is another facet to the reality of evil and the reality of spiritual warfare that we face in our life. And it is that behind the evil that we see and the evil that we experience lies a cosmic personality whose purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he's come to do. That's what we saw when we explored John in chapter 10 of that gospel. That he has come to rob, in particular, the church of her joy and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we come to terms with that. We can't understate that. Because when we go about life unaware that this life is a battle constantly, all the time, when we fail to come to terms with the fact that it's a battle, then we are ill-prepared to go out into it. We're ill-prepared to fight the battle. And then when the rubber meets the road, things like sickness, financial strain, relational hardship, falling apart marriages, difficult situations at work, those things begin to own us, and they begin to define us, and they begin to enslave us to their curses. And so if that is the case, then we need to know how to fight this battle. We need to know how to to battle down the enemy in the midst of a life and in the midst of a world that's seeking to subvert our identity in Christ. And if we're going to do that, we need to understand a couple of things. First thing we need to understand is the nature of our enemy. The nature of the one who is coming to kill and steal and destroy. We need to know what he's like. When you go to war, you need to know the personality, the disposition of your enemy. But you need to know a second thing as well. You also need to know how to fight him. You need to know the means that you can use, or in the the words of a former president of ours, the strategery of how you're going to go about fighting this enemy. So those are the two areas of this passage that I want to look at this morning. So here's the first thing. What's our enemy like? What does he do? I think in order to understand that, you need to know, first of all, where this war, where this battle that we are all confronting in our Christian life is being waged. Where is that being waged? I think you discover it if you look back in the letter to Ephesians back in chapter 2. You can turn there with me if you want. I just want to read this briefly to you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he's saying that the battle is taking place in the heavenly places. And listen to what Paul says. He says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, what in the world does that mean? This is what I think it means. I think it means that even though we have not yet fully taken possession of it, in a very real sense, our residence is with Christ in the heavenly places. That's where our address is. That's where our identity lies. It lies with Christ in heaven beside Him. And so if you've come to know Him, I think that it means that your personal identity has been transferred from something else and over to Christ. You become defined in the way that He defines you rather than in the way that you define yourself. You you live your life in and through your united relationship that He has established between you and Himself. And it means this on a practical way. It means that you begin to view yourself 
and the way that your heavenly Father views you. It means that He views you as united to Christ. That He loves you with the same love with which He loves His own Son. That's true for all who believe in Jesus Christ. He can no longer turn His back on you than He can on His own Son. That's the way in which you've been loved. You've been purchased at the cost of His very own life. You've been brought into fellowship with Him. You have all of the blessings in this life and the next of what He gives to you in the Gospel. And so when Paul is saying here that the battle is not merely against the natural things that we see with our eyes, things like our relationships, or the political situation, and spouses and children and jobs and things like that, when he's saying it's not against that, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he's saying that the battle is taking place at the very source of our self-definition, of our identity in Christ. He's saying that the spiritual forces of evil are seeking to undermine and subvert how you understand yourself in relationship to Christ. I want you to think about that in light of where this passage actually is in the letter to the Ephesians. Because if you just make a cursory scan over the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, and then the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 5, he seems to be building this whole passage about spiritual warfare on the heels of how he's talking about our relationships with, between husband and wife and children and parent and slave and master, which is a whole can of worms to open up. He's talking about the ordinary, mundane areas in which we live our life, in which evil comes to seek to undermine our relationship with Christ, undermine our identity in Christ. That's where we're most strongly pressed to live out our Christian identity. In your marriage, when something's not going right, that's when the enemy and the place where the enemy spews out his lies towards you. In your relationship with your kids, your kids drive you bonkers, absolutely up the wall. And that's where you're pressed to figure out how you're going to be an imitator of God in those circumstances. Kids, got bad news for you as well. Your parents are probably driving you crazy. And in 30 years from now, they're still going to be driving you crazy. That's just the reality of life. And whether or not you end up honoring Jesus Christ in those situations says a lot about your personal understanding of your identity in Christ, of how deeply loved you are by Him, about what His claims are upon your life, and that He has forgiven you even when you have wronged Him. Think about that in light of what the serpent did to Eve in the garden. The serpent comes to Eve in the garden and he makes good promises, doesn't Doesn't he? He's very appealing to her. He makes enticing promises. He offers her something that seems apparently irresistible. And he makes God look like the one who is out to rob her of joy. That's the way that evil works. Evil works all the time by coming at you and disguising itself as good. In fact, you see this when Paul is talking about evil in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says that the devil comes to you disguised as an angel of light. 
Evil never comes to you and, and makes you think, hmm, let's go do some evil today. That's not the way that it works. It comes to you and it brings good things to you. Wonderful things. Gifts of common grace that God gives to us and tells us that those are things that we cannot live without. It comes to you and tells you that your life only has meaning to the degree that you get what you want. To the degree that you're successful in your relationships, in your work, at school, and any of those things. That you are valued to the degree that you accomplish certain things. And if you underperform in any of those roles, in any of those responsibilities, then you are deemed as a failure. And when you and I begin to believe that and live like that, it's at that point where we have transferred our identity from God, from Jesus Christ, from what He's done for us in the Gospel, and we've moved it over to something else to define us, to build our lives upon, even though we may be convinced the entire time that we're still worshiping Jesus Christ. You know, I think one of the reasons why our resolve in the faith is so weak sometimes, is that we think that the, the period in which we're living our lives right now is a period of peace. That it's peace time. That all is calm and all is bright. When in reality, the Christian life is an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle. And if it's an ongoing battle, then we need to be prepared to fight in that battle. We need to be aware of the resources that Jesus Christ has supplied for us if we're going to maneuver our way through this battle. We need to understand the schemes of the enemy. And so, that's what Paul brings forth to us in the rest of this passage. The good news that we see in this passage is that God has prepared us for the battle. He has given us the resources that we need in the gospel to go about fighting the battle of evil that we experience and that we commit in our own lives. And you'll notice here that Paul, at the very beginning of this passage, in verse 10, calls us to do what? To be strong in the Lord. That's something that he wants for our lives, that God wants for our lives. He wants us to be strong in the Lord. Because if you're going to go to battle and you're not going to be strong, then you're going to get whooped. That's the reality. And so you need to be strong in the midst of that. Now, it's a lot easier for me to stand up here and tell you to be strong in the Lord than it is for you to do it, isn't it? It's easier for me to, do, to preach it than it is to do it as well. You know, I, I've had people come into my office and say, I, I'm having a really hard time loving my husband or wife. I've been really mean and and harsh, and I'm bitter, and I'm angry. If I just turn to them, and in my genius counseling skills, just say, well, you know what? You just need to stop it. That's probably not going to be particularly helpful counsel, isn't it? Because that person is coming to me in the first place knowing that they've got a problem, but not knowing how to fix it. They don't know what resources are there to fix it to begin to live in a loving, compassionate, godly way before their wife or their husband. And I think the same concept is true for gospel-flavored, Christ-centered strength. Anyone who is a follower of Christ is going to want to be strong in the Lord, 
But I know that many of us don't know how to do that. What are the ABCs of becoming strong in the Lord? Well, what you discover when you look at Scripture is that strength in the Lord has a rather ironic and counterintuitive twist to it. Because if you look back to not Ephesians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll discover that Paul is recounting many of the hardships and sufferings that he faced in this life. And his life was hard. It was no Carnival Cruise experience. In fact, when he got on the Carnival Cruise ship, it wrecked. And he was out at sea just suffering for his own life, pleading to God for that. And then he talks about this mysterious thorn in his flesh. We have no idea what that is. But when you have a thorn in your flesh, there are going to be very few moments of the day that you're not going to be thinking about that thorn. Because it's painful. It's always there. And he's reminded in the midst of his hardships that he is far weaker than he ever began to imagine. And he takes this before the Lord. And this is what he hears from the Lord. He says, God speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your strength. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the point. The point is this. You and I are only going to grab hold of the strength that God supplies for us in the midst of our hardships only to the degree that we discover that that strength comes from outside of us and not from within us. That the strength that we need to live out the Christian life comes from an external source. It comes from God alone. We do not in our own native strength, have the resources to fight through the battle that we face in this life. You know what that means about your weakness and my weakness? It means that we don't know how to love people. We don't know how to love God. We don't know how to serve Him and others. And we don't know how to follow Him. And we don't know how to be content. And we don't know how to be joyful. And it ultimately means that we do not know how to save ourselves and that we cannot do so unless God works in us and does it for us. Friends, the whole gospel is about God's strength invading your weakness. That's how you begin to live strong in the Lord. And coming to see that is going to change every facet of your life. It's going to change you from the inside out. You know, a lot of people would rather hear sermons on how to manage your finances, how to have five steps to a happier, healthier, wealthier life. Those are issues that we face. There's some legitimacy to that, but the point is this. If our guidance and our decisions in those areas are not born out of the fact that we are inherently weak, and that God's strength is invading our lives by His grace, through faith in Him, and that He is the only source of our power and strength, then we're going to end up fighting for our marriages, for our families, for all of those spheres of life, 
and fundamentally for our identity in Christ with something that has all the value and reliability of some toy that you get in a Happy Meal. It's cheap. It's worthless. Because we don't have the resources natively that we need. Living the Christian life is about living out of the resources and the wardrobe that Jesus Christ supplies for us in the Gospel. And Paul lays that out for us here. He's opening up the closet and he's showing you what is on the hangers. He's showing you the wardrobe that he's given you to fight that you need to fight the Christian life. And so, here's what they are. He talks about the belt of truth. What does it mean to have the belt of truth strapped on? It means that you have Jesus, his character, his person, his work, the one who is the truth. You have him flowing through your veins, flowing through your life. Jesus called himself the way, the truth in your life. And it means that you build your life upon him. That he is your fundamental reference point for every way in which you understand God, every way in which you understand yourself, every way in which you understand his people, and every way in which you understand the world. That that Jesus is that reference point upon which you're building your life. And you know what Jesus also says about the truth? He says that his word is truth. And it means that his word, which is the window through which you gain insight into who Jesus is and through which he speaks to us, that that word is the authority upon which you build your life. You know, in the, the bulletin this morning, we put a Bible reading plan in there. And we put it in there not so that you would have a bunch of boxes that you could check off and show to Jesus and say, look what I did for you. Look at how much Bible I read. That's not why we did that. We did that because if you don't typically have a plan, then you're not going to do it. And so we wanted to give you a resource, a plan as to how you can go about encountering Jesus Christ through his word, seeing him for who he really is, coming to grips with who you are in light of who he is. Because we think that the way to spiritual health And the way to joy in Jesus Christ is by coming to know Him better as He reveals Himself in His Word. And so that's how we get that belt of truth strapped onto us as we tune into Him and see Him as the reference point from which we live our lives. And then Paul goes on to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. Wearing the breastplate of righteousness means that you understand what Jesus has declared of you that He has justified you. A justified person is treated as a person who has not broken the law, as someone who is righteous. He's actually declared us righteous because of what He's done for us in the Gospel. All of the moral perfection of Jesus Christ has been deposited into our life purely by His grace as we turn to Him in faith. And that's who you are now. You are declared righteous. And so it means that in the practical reality of life, you go out and you live authentic to that. You live faithfully to that because that's who you are. You know, fakeness is something that people just hate. And for good reason. Because it's, it's phony. It's, it's a plastic way of living. And as Christians, people who have been united to Christ 
for us to go out and live in ways that are just purely ungodly. For us to live in ways in which we're showing that our hope is built upon our own morality even, our own accomplishments other than what God has done for us and what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, shows that we don't understand what he's truly done for us there. Because what he's done for us in the gospel is not only forgive you of your sins, but declare us holy. And so we go out and we live in relationship. And we live before him and before others in ways that reflect that holiness. Here's a third item in the closet that he's given us in addition to the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. He's given us the shoes of the gospel of peace. This means that you know what your life is all about now. You see in Ephesians 2, we talk about it a lot here, it's one of my favorite parts of the gospel, but we see in Ephesians 2 that he's broken down the wall of hostility between us and him, and he has established peace. He's brought about peace where there was nothing but hostility and rage and wrath. And he's come and he's brought peace. That's what your life is about. Your life is about having peace with God now that he holds none of your sin over your head. He no longer accuses you of that. He's casted into the depths of the sea. And we see that this peace is something that we own when we look at the end of this passage. When you look at verse 23, you see a benediction there. It's a declaration of promise upon all of God's people. And it says this. This is what Paul leaves his people with. He says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just such a great reminder to me, and I hope it is to you, that that's what Jesus has done. You were not at peace with God at all until He came and invaded your life and set your soul free from the shackles of slavery to sin and death and wrath and set you free and liberated your soul to be at peace with Him. That's what your life is about now. That's how you begin to understand yourself. Next one. What about the shield of faith? What does it mean to have faith? He's given you this shield. And I think that what it means to have faith is that you, you take action on the basis of trustworthy, reliable promises. You, you act and you live in relationship in a trusting way with someone that where you trust that they will do what they have said that they will do. And so to have faith in Jesus Christ is to actually believe that He will never leave you or forsake you. To believe and live in such a way that nothing will snatch you out of His hand. And that He has eternally secured your salvation for those who believe in Him. And so when the flaming arrows come at you, of accusation, of doubt of falsehood, when they are coming at you, you lift up that shield and you block them with faith, declaring the promises of Jesus Christ to you in the Gospel. It means that you're defining your life in the way in which He defines you and not by something else. I get bombarded with lies about Christ, about holiness, and about myself all the time. And you probably do too. I hear in one way or another that I'm a colossal failure, a fool, wasting my life, that I could be doing so, something so much better, something so much more valuable. And the reason why I don't is because I can't. Because I'm the doofus of South Mississippi. 
that's, that's what I hear in my life. I hear all kinds of things that would make me believe that I have no reason to have security. And if you're honest with yourself, you battle with insecurity all the time yourself. It's there. There's always something that's trying to rob you of your security in Christ. And when I hear those things, in one fashion or another, and when you hear those things in one way or another, you lift up the shield of faith and you say that God's love for me is not based upon what I accomplish and what I've done or what I've failed to do because Jesus Christ has suffered in my place. He's given me grace. I'm defined in the way that He defines me, not how other people define me, not how I even define myself. Not in what the world tells me I have to have to be a valuable person. I rest upon what Jesus Christ has done. That is not, my friends, the same thing as just looking into, your, into the mirror in the morning and giving yourself some kind of self-help guru load of nonsense to build up your self-esteem. That's saying that Jesus has told me who I am in the gospel and I'm living my life in that way. Next thing is he's given us is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, my friends, is about getting rid of your insecurity too. Why are you so paranoid about your future? Why are you so fearful? Why are you so worried? It's because you're insecure. But when you wear the helmet of salvation, you put that on, you're reminded of the security that Jesus has provided for you. You know, this is a life that is fragile and teetering. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, doesn't He? Many of you know that. You can point to 50 personal, practical, tangible ways in which that's happened in the last few years of your life. But you know this. When you look at that helmet of salvation, you put that on, the one thing that He cannot take away from you is your salvation. He cannot take away that from you. And He will not, because He's promised that He won't. Wearing that salvation, that helmet of salvation, gives you a sense of security in the midst of the fragility of this life. Here's the last thing. The last thing that He's given to us is the sword of the Spirit. It's an offensive weapon. All the other ones are defensive. These are offensive. This is an offensive weapon He's given to us. And it means that He's given us His Word, which is sharper and a two-edged sword pierces our hearts, enlivens our souls, points us to Jesus Christ, enables us to get our life docked upon Him. There is one theologian, I can't even remember who it is, but he said, that, he said this, and I just think this is important for you and I to remember. He said, Show me a Christian whose Bible is falling apart, and I will show you a Christian who isn't. Show me a Christian whose Bible is falling apart and I will show you a Christian who isn't. It's about getting that word deep into your bones so that you can fight the accuser. Now, I'm going to tell you the wrong way to finish up this sermon. The wrong way to finish up this sermon would be to say, okay now church, go home and start working on the armor. Polish it up. Work on it. If that's the message you got out of here, you missed it. And I think a lot of us have that view of Christianity. That Christianity is somehow just about bending our will a little bit more and more to Christ so that we won't suffer His judgment. So that we'll get into His good graces. And that if we can just get the armor going, then our life will be in good shape with Him. 
Maybe you're terrified of failure. That's probably why you're so insecure and you bring that into all of your relationships and all of your doings in this life. But friends, I want you to leave with this. This is what I want you to take with you. That the Gospel frees you of that mindset. If you're resting in Him and He's the foundation of your security, you can know that His love will never let you go. And that's true regardless of your successes and failures in life. Regardless of even how well you're living the Christian life, despite all the exhortations that we have to live in obedience and faithfulness to Him, to imitate Him. And to know that, and to be consciously aware of it, and to be mindful of the love that Jesus Christ gives to you in the Gospel, is really what changes your heart. That's what causes you to live obediently. That's what causes you to live faithfully in a life of joy in Him. And here's what you need to remember. Ultimately, it's this. Ultimately, the war is already over. There's still battles to fight in this life, but the war is over. The enemy that we are fighting is a defeated enemy. He is down by five touchdowns with 30 seconds left. He is totally hopeless. That's the enemy that you're fighting and has been defeated not by you, but by Jesus Christ for you. And He has no claims over your life. And to the degree that you get that is the degree that you'll begin to be living a life of joy in Him and a life of contentment in who He is and what He's done for you. And my prayer for us, my prayer for you this morning, is that we would leave here knowing that reality and knowing the beauty of the Gospel promises that He gives to us. Let's think about that now as we come before Him in prayer. Father, this is one of those passages that does pierce our souls because it's so real for us. The the evil that we have facing us every day from those with whom we work, from our own selves, from a world that just doesn't even seem to make sense to us That's what we face and we need your resources to fight this battle. We thank you that our strength does not come from within, but it comes from without. It comes from you. That you have given us the wardrobe we need. We pray that you would give us the help and that you would empower us and that you would do it for us in the terms of putting that wardrobe on every day. Because the moment we leave here this morning, there will be things that will seek to strike at our identity in Christ. And so we will need you. Please, Lord, do your work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.